We could have got hacked for like over 50 million. It was a bug at the time that just gave us PTSD and we were really slow on getting things live. Essentially, it was a re-entrancy bug. Manipulate the price of LPs using the Delta Neutral strategies and then could have wiped the vaults. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Degachi, the host of Scraping Bits. And today I'm with SafetyBot. How's it going? Uh, it's going well, man. Can't complain. Can't complain. <laughs> yeah. Let's do a little intro of who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, so I'm co-founder of Robo Labs. Uh, essentially, we're building out tooling and infrastructure for Web3 teams. Uh, we started in 2021. Basically started by launching RoboVault, a uh, product that maybe some listeners are familiar with. Uh, we were doing Delta Neutral strategies on Phantom and Avalanche, essentially allowing users to deposit and yield, doing some hedging against impermanent loss. And basically, at the start of this year, we decided to do a bit of a pivot uh, for a number of reasons. DeFi bear market was hitting us hard. And also, we just found as like running DeFi protocol, most of our time was actually just spent building tools for ourselves because the current current tools are actually pretty pretty terrible and yeah, yeah. that's that's why we moved more to the tooling and infrastructure side of things yeah yeah and how did you get into web3 uh were you doing stuff before as a dev or uh so i was actually at a startup doing we were doing solar power microgrids and we had projects in a bunch of third world countries, uh, one of them being Nigeria, and I was managing the finances there, and right. our bank accounts continuously got shut down, and we had oh. to use crypto, crypto to start like sending money to pay for stuff, uh, because we had kind of manufacturing in China, we'd be like paying for things in Nigeria, yeah, and essentially started using crypto, then kind of just went down the rabbit hole, and decided to kind of teach myself solidity as DeFi summer was popping off and yeah, basically built RoboVault is basically the first product that mm -hmm. built in Web3. Right. And uh, did you do anything prior to RoboVault in Web3 or did you just go straight into that? Uh, uh, straight into that. Um, did oh. play around my, myself and my co-founder. We did play around a bit with arbitrage bots. Uh, I'd say that's more bit outside web three it's kind of crypto centralized exchange yeah yeah uh we didn't didn't have much success there though uh, <laughs> yeah. it's very competitive yeah but it got you into the realm of you know strategies and bots in a sense or you know automated yeah. and then what made you get into basically these delta neutral strategies and how did you learn them because i've tried to learn them as well and it's quite hard um yeah, I think my background's in data science, so I kind of saw all this DeFi stuff happening and just pretty much started by being like, oh, this is interesting. You can earn 100% by providing an LP on this pair, but actually, like, if the price moves, you're going to lose a lot from IL, but you can lend and borrow. What happens if I lend some money, then borrow another token, and then put in the LP and then try and do some swaps when the market moves, basically just 
built some spreadsheets at first and built some Python simulations. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this actually looks like it might make a bit of money. And then just was like, can, can I write the code for this along with my co-founder? And we're like, oh, let's try and write some smart contracts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then basically we're like, oh, let's launch this. Uh, I think the, the V1 of our launch had a bunch of bugs uh, <laughs> and vulner- vulnerabilities. So luckily we never got hacked. Came in as naive developers, not really understanding the security element and thankfully didn't didn't lose a bunch of people's money. But yeah, essentially it was just kind of experimenting, uh, playing around and finding something that worked really. Uh, just playing mm-hmm. with numbers, yeah. And, and it worked, right? Like it, it actually produced results. Yeah, I think we had from like when we launched to the 12 month, the following 12 months on like USDC, the yields, someone would have earned around 20% over like that 12 month period. And that's without like any emissions at all. Like we never launched a token. Yeah, so we had like pretty solid track record. Obviously, like as it's a function of volatility and the mm-hmm. yield, like from trading fees, emissions, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, like we, we have we had a pretty tried and tested track record of producing pretty solid yields mm-hmm. for users. Yeah. And, and, and what is like Delta neutral strategies for those that don't know? Yeah, so I guess the term's a bit loosely used yeah. in, in terms of uh, like if you talk to a TradFi person, it's like very different. But in terms of like the Web3, it's basically kind of market neutral. You are basically kind of regardless of what happens in terms of market movements, you're protected against those market movements. So you kind of have some hedge. Uh, so in our case, like for a USDC depositor, they would be depositing USDC earning yield from say USDC phantom liquidity mm-hmm. pool and but they're actually protected against that any movements in the price of phantom if phantom like dumps 50% which it has done many times they're, yeah. they're protected against that yeah. so so how is it actually protected at like a technical level uh, so the way we did it was essentially we for the, on the USDC side mm-hmm. deposit USDC into a lending protocol, borrow some Phantom, and then pair that with the remaining USDC. So your amount of Phantom in the LP pool is equal initially to what you borrowed. Mm-hmm. And then as the price of Phantom moves, we just look at the ratio between what's in the LP and what's in what you owe to lending pool. And if that goes above or below some threshold, we do a swap and rebalance. So it's not like a perfect hedge. There's like some small exposure to potential price losses. But uh, basically what we found was on, I'd say, 99% of days, we would always be like profitable. The user would always be in profit. And the drawdowns, I think the worst case were like less than... 0.5%. This works well. There's like a bunch of other teams doing similar stuff still. Yeah, I think it's the issue is more at the moment, just like in general, DeFi yields are not that appetizing. The, the whole kind of like yield farming season is over. Uh, yeah. Like I think during the food craze, this would have been amazing. It would just be 
bowling in money. You know, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, there's like uh, old old screenshots I have, and it's like look back at it, and it's like there's like a 28 day period where yeah. US DC yields were at like 70 percent APY. And yeah, the good old days. It was, it was, it was, it was yeah, some, some insanity in yeah. like 2021, 2022. Yeah, like the sushi swap, yam, like ample. Yeah. That stuff was insane. I, I, I really like miss those times because now that I'm like a, a better developer, I could capitalize on that. But oh man, it, it just makes me like FOMO for the next season of whatever yeah. it's going to be. But if it was profitable, like, why don't you still do it now? I know, like, the, the pools are still, like, quite low in terms of APR, APY, but if it's profitable, then you should still do it, right? Yeah, I think what we found was the overhead is pretty high and, like, the level of risk is actually pretty high. Um, so when you're running these strategies, you have the risk of what happens if the Lenin protocol breaks what happens if there's vulnerability on the side and actually we like dealt with some pretty close calls for example on when we were on phantom when scream got exploded we had like before that i think we had like 10 mil tvl there luckily like we had set up like some alerts and things like that Mm. to like alert if weird things were happening so we were able to get like just withdraw all that money. Yeah, and basically it got to a point where as users got much more risk averse and yields were dropping, it just became yeah, not really profitable from like an operational standpoint unless you were able to really attract a lot of TBL, which we found was hard to do. It was like just hard to differentiate ourselves. And as a protocol without a token, you're competing against protocols that are maybe like popping up every month with the token and <laughs> everyone's just going yeah, like, yeah. to go there, farm and dump the tokens. And even if you can, yeah, so you're competing with uh, that, which is very hard to do over long term. And we kind of came to the conclusion for these more advanced strategies, mm-hmm. like if you really wanted to do it well with managing a lot of money, it's probably easier to do at the moment with the, like, the state of Web3 and the tools available. Mm-hmm. It's probably just easier to do it as a hedge fund and like in yeah. a centralized way. Like you can whip up a strategy in like a day there. Whereas if you're trying to do it in the DeFi way through a vault, it's maybe like six weeks, six yeah. weeks auditing, etc. Yeah. So we put, we, yeah, I think we kind of figured it out actually like it's just not, it was worked really well in the bull market, but bear market, like it's it's not, not going to work as, yeah, a, as a business always, model. Always prepare for the for the bull market, though. Since we're in the bear, yeah. you're so you capitalize yeah. on that. Um, uh, we still still got the code ready to redeploy. Yeah. <laughs> Just waiting for the opportunity, and and so. You finished that, you packed that up. Did you sell it at all or just kind of close shop and move on? Yeah, so we just wound, basically just wound the bolts down and just said, yeah, we're turning things off, hit the off switch and basically decided to move on as a team to focus on more tooling and infrastructure. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah, our efforts where that actually like, and a big thing, big reason for that was 
I think, as I was saying before, we like had a few bugs in right. like first iteration. We almost got hacked. We could have got hacked for like over 50 million. Oh, wow. Because there was, was, a, was a bug uh, at the time that just gave us like PTSD and we were like really slow on getting what things the, live. What was uh, the bug? Uh, essentially, it was a re-entrancy bug, like price manipulation. Oh. Yeah, that, that we kind of, so we are able to kind of manipulate the price of like the LPs using the delta neutral uh, strategies and then could have just wept the vaults. Um, in, in retrospect, it's kind of a pretty obvious thing that we just missed as when you're like getting your first product live, you're just super enthusiastic to deploy something. Yeah, uh, it seems yeah. like any kind of a vault kind of protocol like i remember grim finance it had that exact same thing someone just like re-entered the same function with like a false yeah. token i think and then at, yeah at the end like the last re-entrancy step they just put like the actual token had all the shares and then just withdrew it all i remember yeah. seeing that in like real time as well it was a uh, crazy i guess when you're building this stuff as well and you see like other teams getting hacked it just scares the hell out of you uh, oh yeah like, it more diligent. Uh, always got like that look on you're always looking over your back especially if it's yeah, yeah. you know you got millions of dollars in it <laughs> yeah it's just like i think yeah, there was because when we first got that bug discovered i think i just woke up at like five to like all these messages it's like group chat with like the UN team and it was just like uh we discovered this and we were figuring out how to wind things down how to save yeah. it and then the the next 12 months was every day waking up thinking is today the day that another bug is going to be discovered <laughs> but luckily yeah didn't yeah. say yeah i guess how did you go about like winding down from knowing there was a an exploit in your contract uh, uh so oh so with the first one basically we kind of just like worked with the yearn team uh they were kind of like helping us. Uh, we basically just kind of pulled everything out of the strategies. Luckily, our vaults allowed us to change mm -hmm. some parameters to actually like remove it. Uh, we did that. I remember that while we were doing that, like people in our Discord were like, oh, funds being moved. Is the team rugging? And we're kind of like, <laughs> before, before we announced, yeah, we <laughs> why, before we announced that, we just made sure like everything was safe. Um, yeah, yeah. And then we kind of announced it. We're like, ah, oh, everyone should withdraw now. There's like a potential exploit. We've, we've like migrated funds out of the strategy, but um, we're going to have to redeploy a new version. And yeah, we kind of, yeah, that's, that's how we do it. The communication actually went pretty well. Like, a lot of people like were like, oh, you guys handled this well. Um, you yeah. didn't fumble the ball. Because there's, there's been cases of other teams I've seen where like people point out an exploit and it's been ignored and then they've got hacked like a few weeks later. Uh, Crazy. So luckily we, luckily we weren't one of those teams. And, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. But you basically just helped, like, you and helped you out, did some like yeah. strategy to kind of withdraw it all and then it was all set. Yeah, and then, yeah, essentially, like, the next two gotcha. months was, like, rebuilding it without the bugs and re-releasing it. Yeah. Mm, got you, got you. And after you did all this, switching over to the tooling side, I guess, what was the process and, you know, going to the next 
project, Archiver, right? So what was the yes. transition period like? Say the first few months was pretty all over the place. We were kind of trying different things out. It was like testing a few different ideas. Like, uh, could we focus on real-time alerts? Because that's something that we'd built for ourselves that had Lucky actually right. like saved us saved yeah. us like multiple millions of dollar losses. Um, mm-hmm. Archiver as well was something that we'd been building internally just because we'd found that indexing was like such a huge pain point for us. Yeah, yeah, sure. Having that data pipeline. So yeah, like the first two months I'd say was just experimentation. And then, yeah, we basically kind of got a bunch of feedback from users uh, other like teams, etc., and decided to really like go all in on on Archiver. So yeah, this quarter it's been uh, we've got the product to private beta. We've got a few customers that we're working pretty closely with, like onboarded nice. and actually like using it for various use cases. But yeah, it's like very been the first first two months were a bit bit all over the place now it's kind of we know yeah. we have an actual direction and know what we're building right so you already kind of had the product before with robobot robovolt and that's you kind of just like shifted it over right it wasn't starting it from scratch at all yeah so i guess it was built as an internal tool so it was kind of taking it from okay this is something we're using internally for this very specific use case to actually how can we build this into a general product that any full stack developer within Web3 can use and can kind of do their indexing, can deploy their like APIs to production, uh, can solve a lot of the existing pain points that there are with the graph. uh, Oh, yes. There, I'm sure anyone that's worked with the graph has has like not necessarily always had a fun time working with it, which is <laughs> one of our motivations for building Archiver. Yeah, so yeah, a lot of us being kind of going from internal tool to actually something that anyone can can pick up and have like a really good DevX with and yep, can sure. cover a lot of different use cases. You mentioned that you have. You're getting feedback now, so you already have the MVP, right? And how do you go about giving people this kind of a preview slash alpha experience and then getting the feedback and how do you process that to make into you know the next steps? Yeah, so I think luckily we've kind of got a few people, like a few teams that we're pretty friendly with from our days running the vaults. Uh, so a lot of it's been kind of working closely with those guys, being like, do you want to like test private. this out? And just, yeah, kind of showing them what we can do with the tool. Like at, initially there was a lot of hand-holding where we would potentially do the work for them. Like, okay, we'll write some index jobs for you and here's kind of the output and mm-hmm. actually like see see if they're happy with it, show them what what additional like stuff they can do with it that they can't currently do with the graph. Uh, so we also built one thing that's pretty interesting is an open source backtesting library that sits on top of Archiver that allows you to kind of backtest DeFi strategies. So yeah, really just talking to as many developers as we can, 
seeing if they're interested to try it out, having a few different examples of like the the workflow, what it looks like for them, mm-hmm. and then really just getting them to try try it out and just doing doing as much hand holding as possible, kind of really trying to if they get stuck on anything because our documentation is not perfect still like some loose wires like some bugs that might might pop up every now and then mm-hmm. uh, with that certain edge cases we haven't tested uh, so really just being kind of super hands-on with with our users and customers to make make sure the products are really actually like solving the, the pain points we want to solve now that you're like done two startups in the web free space how do you kind of go about prioritizing what needs to be done yeah i think this is pretty pretty tough one Mm -hmm. and we're not like myself and my co-founder haven't haven't always done a great job at this like and and like i'd say like this is actually just still the same startup like this is actually still the same company that was doing robovolt but yeah i think it's really just kind of talking amongst the team uh, trying to like have a vision, getting really trying to push things, push out MVPs as fast as possible so you can get feedback from users because there is a temptation. I think like a lot of engineers want to get things perfect before they kind of show it to a user and they might spend six, 12 months building something. Then when they finally show it to like users, they're like, ah, oh, this is not, doesn't solve my problem. But if yeah. you can have a much faster, cycle where say you spend two months getting bare bones of product and then you kind of can show them this is yeah then you're like uh we're in the going in the right direction or you kind of might be like oh this this is completely waste of time like (laughs) one after we pivoted one thing we built we started building a product called denotify as well as archiver which is basically like a real-time alerts engine like we're still kind of working on it but we've deprioritized that just because we don't think it's super super like interesting and there's a lot of other teams that offer like real-time alerts for for on-chain activity so yeah i think it's really just try and build as fast as possible get the feedback that from your like target user customer group Mm -hmm. and then figure out where to go next is yeah yeah, how, how we've gone about it so how did you how do you decide what is absolutely necessary for your products? Because I'm I think a lot of people are like this in the startup space is you know you have this idea when you want to build out each feature uh, first and then ship it, but then there's a the problem of never shipping it, <laughs> and then yeah. the, the project dies. Um, so what are like kind of the, what are the steps you take to ensuring you get this MVP and making a bare bones minimum? Yeah, so what we've done, we kind of have a product development process where three of us in the team every two weeks, we basically just have like a list of features and there's like high priority, medium priority, low priority, and then we'll just kind of look at that list for an hour and be like, we thought this was high priority, but actually no one wants it, no one needs it. Let's not right. do this. And yeah, it's kind of just regularly like going through that, making sure that we're not building features that no one's going to use. But how do you know what that is before you <laughs> you even do it? Before you have customers, right? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a, before you have customers, it's a bit of a leap of faith. Uh, and okay. you can always, there is like 
talking to users beforehand. The way we kind of like our kind of thought process was we were like our first internal user slash customer because we built this stuff for ourselves as yeah. as as a team that was managing a DeFi protocol. We're like, ah oh, shit, we like suffered <laughs> suffered a lot and had to use some tools that put us through like some yeah, just had a bunch of issues, wasted a bunch of time. So that kind of gave us a pretty good idea of where the gaps were in the market, uh, what really could be improved on the existing tool set. But yeah, I'd say before even building something, you can just try and talk to your like target users, customers, and just mm-hmm. know, re- reach out to people on Twitter, Discord, wherever. And just like, I'm thinking of building this. Do you think it would be interesting? Ask them like, what are your pain points, etc. And yeah, really just trying to get as much data. But yeah, like you can't, I'd say like there's, I think there's a Steve Jobs quote where he talks about like doing kind of customer surveys is a waste of time because mm. you try and like just ask your customer like what they want. They And if it's like a big stepwise difference, they're not necessarily going to be able to give you good feedback. So Mm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of finding balance between trying to understand the pain points of your target users and where you yeah. can actually like solve a problem uh, and then you figuring out actually what product can do that and what features actually solve those problems. Yeah, I think asking what do you want doesn't really make sense because mm. if they have, I guess, a car, they want a, a faster car, right? Yeah. Which is just kind of like makes sense. <laughs> but I think a better question to ask is what are your problems? And then you can go from there. I think because that's more, because that, that's basically what engineering is. It's solving problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if it's just like an optimization thing, then I sure you can just make the current product faster. But I, I think there's a deeper, you can go deeper into something if you ask them what the problem is. Because maybe there's like an underlying, oh, maybe instead of this car, I want an airplane <laughs> to travel. Mm. I want to go over over countries, basically. And then yeah. okay, there's, a, there's that instead of a car. You can't drive over water unless you make some, you know, <laughs> some flying car or some, something. Yeah, but the, I think there's... Not fast, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's like a quote on this from like Henry Ford, where it's like, if you ask people if they wanted a car, they'd say they just want like faster horses and buggies. Whereas, yeah, like, yeah. So if you relied on just like what, asking them what they want, they wouldn't have said, I want a car because they don't even know like what a car is. Um, exactly, yeah. At, at that point. So yeah, it's like, it's, it's pretty hard to like find that balance. And yeah, because the other thing is if you just ask, what do you want? You might just end up with a laundry list of all these like different features from different users. And then you're yeah. just trying to build just this massive maze of, of features within one product, uh, trying mm-hmm. to do too much. Yeah. Um, and how do you manage all these, all these hats that you're, you're wearing? Cause obviously you're an engineer, but you also have to manage like the business side, you know, community, the feedback, all this kind of stuff. So how does that kind of look? Yeah, so I've probably done, compared to when we first started, I've done doing like way less dev stuff. Kind of myself and my co-founder have split roles up where I'm more the 
doing the CEO role. He's more the CTO. And yeah, essentially try and I'm trying to specialize more in the less development stuff, which right. at times is frustrating because don't necessarily get to work on technical things, which yeah. is always exciting. Yeah. But also uh, I'm like a self-taught software engineer who's from a data science background who writes very sloppy code, whereas my <laughs> co-founder is a legit software engineer who can is just like a gun on backend stuff, everything, and can like do things in like a super polished way, yeah. uh, way more efficient. Uh, so yeah, kind of just divvying things up based off skill set, etc. Mm-hmm. Is the way we've gone about it. And when like I still like jump in on some dev stuff uh, when I can, when I have time, and help out. But yeah, just try and make sure that say like 80% of our time is on the core stuff that we need to focus on. Yeah. I think another important thing is choosing the right co-founder. So I'm assuming you guys were just friends before, but you might not have been. Why, why do you choose being a co-founder over founding yourself? Yeah, I think, yeah, like what you were saying, uh, myself and my co-founder were both friends before. Uh, we like knew each other. We actually even worked at the same company uh, before starting right. this so, so we're actually like working from the same office and then doing like this crypto stuff at, at night and when we had spare time in our breaks etc but yeah i think i think like as if you're a solo founder like when you're running a company uh there's just so many ups and downs it is good to have like a co-founder to kind of keep you grounded and just you know like go through those battles when things are not going well uh kind of like lean on each other and then Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. So a lot of the stuff that I'm good at might not necessarily be things that my co-founder is good at and then vice versa, things that I'm terrible at, he's really good at. Uh, So so it kind of helps to balance each other's weaknesses out and -hmm. the gaps you you have. Yeah, I think it's just, yeah, I think there's a lot of like quotes from people like, Ben Horowitz that just talk about like co-founder just makes it much easier to run a company, especially when, you know, things going, going bad and you're going through those tough times and oh, yeah. potentially like ready, ready to give up. Uh, if you have someone that you can help, help get you through that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely like having someone in the weeds with you going through it all. But when you're by yourself, yeah. it gets much tougher. I don't know about the benefits of being solo versus co-founder. I've, I've done both, but I, I think like- solo could. I, I think like you can be like really successful solo uh, if you're like dedicated and you know like you multifaceted. Uh, it's potentially going to be like harder. Yeah, it's like but then, then on the other side, yeah. If you have like a bad co-founder, your life's gonna be hell. Yeah, they're yeah, gonna drag sure. you down. Uh, you need to like be like pretty pretty careful. I think it's almost like a marriage in a way. It's kind of like you guys are like <laughs> stuck, stuck stuck together until like either the business blows up or yeah, you guys yeah. decide to part ways. So yeah, or doing solo is like playing on hardcore mode, and then co-founder is kind of like bringing it down to hard mode in some ways. But yeah. if it's the wrong co-founder, it's like 
extreme hardcore. I think there's some some teams that have like three plus co-founders, and then I've I've never really like worked in that situation. But I imagine that gets to the point where it's like too many cooks in the kitchen, and it's potentially like decision making becomes way harder. Uh, I can imagine mm. that that being being like pretty tough to manage. Uh, but yeah, again, it would probably just depend on the people involved. Some people probably can make work. Now that you're doing your second startup in this, you know, web-free area, or what kind of difficulties have you faced while, you know, doing every startup you've done? And if you were to do it again, how would you kind of go about doing this whole journey for a, for a better result or a more accelerated result, I guess? Running like the vaults. Our biggest issue was like distractions. Uh, we weren't like fully zoned in at times. So I remember like when there was a period where we like had really good momentum, we were like growing in TBL. And then I just went off and spent a month building like an MVP for an options protocol instead of like focusing on building oh, building strategies. Wow. It's like, I was like, I was just like, oh, this is a cool idea. I'm going to do this. Um, <laughs> where we probably could have <laughs> say, yeah, I think like one lesson is like when you have momentum, put your foot on the gas, like go hard. Don't, don't like get distracted by other stuff, even though yeah. it might be, be fun and interesting. Uh, don't, don't get like tempted. Obviously like Vitabing's fermentation is good, trying different things, but yeah, kind of yeah. going off and spending, you know, like a month plus building some random other product is probably not, not a good, good way for one of the founders to spend their time. Yeah. And then I think just really doing a better job of interacting with users, the value of like BD and networks. Like I personally am pretty introverted person and hate like the network network inside of things but if you can build up kind of a good group of people who you know like you trust you can like help them out uh, they can help you out with like questions that actually like really helps because uh, then you can be like we're currently struggling with this how do you think we go about it that that that's that's helped a lot and yeah i think we didn't do that very well initially and now we're much better at that uh Still, like, a long way to go, but, yeah, that's, like, one big, big lesson. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the way you're building up your networks now is just reaching out to people and offering basically free products, and is that it? Or are you also, like, trying to make friends with them? Um, yeah, I think one thing that as soon as we, like, shut our vaults down, basically we reached out to a bunch of teams who were doing similar stuff and we're just like, here's a bunch of work we've already done. Here's like all the all pain right. points we had and here's how we solved them because our like previous competitors probably had similar pain points. Uh, yeah. A few people that we did that with end up becoming like customers of ours and users of ours. But yeah, really just trying to like help other people within the like space and I think that finally kind of pays dividends. Like you just build up a bunch of like trust. You have a bunch of people who you know, you've helped ideally. And then they'll, yeah. I guess, human, humans are wired for reciprocal relationships. So that mm -hmm. they might help you, help you uh, later down the line. Yeah. So I think it's just kind of trying to find people that you can potentially add value to in whatever way and not just trying to go in and be like, 
oh, I'm going to try and sell you this. <laughs> buy this, buy this, buy this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Build the yeah. rapport, authentic connections. Yeah. And if, yeah. if you can, like, maybe, like, if they can use your products and be a customer, good. If not, then at least you've, like, got, got someone in your network that kind of can can help you, trust you, etc. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think establishing connections is probably the, the most important thing. Because without mm. these connections, you're not going to have a business. And it's something you can't really buy either. You have to yeah. do it organically. You can't really just go up to someone. Like, I, I guess you could do like a marketing agency, but then you're not building like authentic connections at that point. Yeah, I think you can't like, there's no way to like fake your way into it. It's like if you, if you have nothing like valuable to offer them, like whether it's just like lessons or mm-hmm. some information, etc. Yeah, no one's gonna like wanna wanna like talk to you, uh, yeah, on, on like a business level. Yeah, so I think it's. But I guess as like someone more technical, I think often this like goes ignored, and the value of it goes ignored. Uh, you mm. kind of just want to be like heads down and building stuff, etc. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. like, yeah, I think like a lot of people in the technical areas often just don't realize how valuable this is. Yeah, I think the only, I guess there's two different types of devs that I've noticed is like the ones that are like, you know, 100% engineers don't do any biz dev, but there's also some that do like engineering and biz dev, which I think is like the perfect kind of mixture because you have the technical, you know, the technical expertise to build out projects you think about but you also have the network and the communication skills to talk to people about, you know, ideas, form connections, just build friendships, right? And through friendships brings opportunities. And for example, like this podcast, uh, I get to talk to technical people and discuss, you know, ideas and what they do. And that gives insight into different fields and what's also missing. So I think that's also a, a, a key area for any kind of engineer, which is massively, you know, it lacking. <laughs> I think once you develop that, which is definitely a skill, it's not something you're just born with. I mean, you can be naturally confident, but talking and making connections is definitely a skill. And I think when someone develops this, it makes life so much easier, especially if you run a protocol. When you're building it, then you can fall back on these people, ask them for questions. You know, ask them questions to help you, which is what I've been doing personally, and it's been helping a lot. I've had great discussions with, you know, auditors about specific things, and it's kind of like sparked, sparked ideas of breakthroughs for my uh, for my project. But yeah, it's 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 quite interesting. Uh, I, yeah, I just just listening. Oh, yeah, I completely, yeah, I completely, yeah, I completely agree. I think the one, the only difference is, is like depending on what stage your company is at, uh, like the early stage, the kind of engineer who can wear many hats and potentially do biz dev is really good. Then, say yeah. if you become like a fifty-person company, you probably don't need all your engineers to be also like. You yeah. on that 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 engi- those engineers who are just like smashing code all day and nothing else and yeah maybe they're like on on some other role and just all they do is <laughs> sixteen sixteen hours nonstop coding. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely like hiring this like the specialties is definitely a thing. But 
I think for like founders or startups, biz dev is like a must. Mm, unless you yeah. have someone in your team that is specifically for that. Yeah. And I think it's even like I've a lot of people say like actually it needs to be like one of the founders doing biz dev initially. I think a lot of teams are just like, oh, we'll just hire a biz dev person and yeah. they can go, go out and talk to them, but then they don't have like all the context on the product. They don't right, necessarily yeah. have you know, like understanding intricacies of how the tech works and mm-hmm. they're not necessarily equipped to actually like succeed as a biz dev person if you just like hire a random salesperson exactly, yeah. who's who's good at networking. Because in those initial stages, you kind of, yeah, you need to like understand the product to get those, like the first few users, it's just really hard to get and you mm-hmm. kind of... Yeah, need to really like understand the product. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas, just like a business person who doesn't necessarily like have great technical expertise might might just struggle with that. Yeah, I think you need a mix because in order to convey your innovation or your edge over others, you need to be able to explain the very technical things high level to first of all users and also to people that you're partnering with. Um, if they're not technically inclined, or maybe they're just like a the person that onboards, you know, partnerships or something, whatever that name is, then you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to explain to them which aren't technical about your product. So it's very essential actually <laughs> when you think of it in like the, the grand scheme of things. Um, yeah. I remember like when we were running our vault, a BD person from one auditor who I won't name, but low quality auditor, they're like BD person set up a call with us. And I just asked him like a few questions that were like semi-technical and he had no idea how to answer it. And straight away I was like, ah, we're definitely not going to ever work with this auditor. Um, <laughs> which is like yeah, just ask him some like very basic technical stuff and yeah so yeah like not to knock BD people or anything uh, I think this is often people, like founders hire BD people and don't necessarily train them up well enough as well is, is another mm-hmm. issue yeah and I guess how did you build kind of your the whole stack of of these uh of these projects as well like do you hire someone for front end or did you bring on board someone that did front end initially for like the vault it was just myself and my co-founder uh pretty much just smacked it away we kind of did some like forking of other other teams front end i think our first front end was a fork of beefy's front end with the colors changed yeah and then slowly we kind of built the team out so now we've got five people in total uh so like two full stack engineers one front end engineer and then myself and my co-founder yeah so we've built slowly built the team out to kind of Mm -hmm. move a lot faster because yeah obviously just two people trying to Trying to build a product is yeah. really tough. Uh, and yeah. how did you how did you get the money to basically hire these people? Did you basically just use personal money, use a VC? How did you kind of get the fund? Yeah, so we did a fundraise in late 2021. Basically, when we right after we had the vault, first vulnerability and we had to shut down our vaults. 
we did a fundraise. <laughs> Luckily, like people were still willing to invest, but at that time, people were willing to invest in anything. Uh, so we raised yeah. like pretty pretty small round, and yeah, that's that along with the revenue we've generated uh, is kind of keeping kept us going up until now. Like we've been a pretty small team, so it's not as if we're kind of spending crazy amounts of money. Uh, like, see, I'm sure you've seen this. You look at some of the like budgets teams have and and what they've built. They're like spending millions of dollars per month and not doing much. Uh, whereas we're of the opinion, like, let's keep a small lean team and really try and try and build quickly. And what was your kind of hiring process for this as well? So you you obviously had like a certain amount of money. So how do you incentivize enough and choose the right people to be aligned with your vision? This is one thing we were pretty terrible at. Um, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> like hiring is actually like really tough. Um, we got we've gotten really lucky and gotten some really good hires. So first two hires came from like a recruiter. We use a recruiter. One of those people was really good. Um, still with us. One of those, the first hire is actually no longer with us. Kind of, they just weren't a great fit. And then the rest of our hires were actually from like our community. Uh, so basically people who were using our product and either like users or friends of users and just got to network that way. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to do it. Like if you can kind of find people who are really excited about what you're building, actually like have like passion because you want people who are kind of, at the end of the day, if you're working for a startup, you're probably going to have to work a lot harder than if you're working, say like a standard nine to five job. So you need people who, who have like a bunch of passion and willing to do stuff outside of just their, you know, like not if you're hiring like full stack developer, they might need to, you know, jump on like custom support one day. They might need to like help a bit with marketing another day, looking for people like that. But I'd say, yeah, we're kind of, we've gotten lucky uh, while having a pretty terrible hiring process uh, just to like right. luckily stumble on some really talented people in our team. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned you, you hired through the community. So I guess, when did you start prioritizing your community development? in this whole process as well while juggling, you know, not even having a product released. It was, it's still the same team as when we had our vaults. So it's still essentially like the the same core team. Um, so basically it was just a case of when we were running our vaults, we just put out some ads, put it in our Discord, you know, like uh, would anyone be keen? Even had one hire who we weren't actually actually actively hiring at the time, but was just a developer working on some other random stuff, asked us a question. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm like struggling to do this. And, and sorry, it was really good as a developer. Um, we were like, oh, let's just hire this guy. So it's just been, yeah, I think luckily because at that time we had a B2C product, we had a lot more kind of engagement with mm-hmm. just people a bit more awareness whereas now we're more a b2b product um but we haven't made any new hires so actually uh, our next hires i'm I'm not sure how we're going to go about it i have to figure out a plan i think (laughs) but potentially like just trying to go to more irl type events and just 
find yeah, yeah. talented people there is is what we're thinking. IRL events are quite quite nice. I went to my first one in in Japan for East Tokyo, and it's quite nice meeting people. Finally, <laughs> like in the space that are you know not just profile pictures. <laughs> um, and you can actually like build connections with them and uh, meet their friends. It's yeah, it's quite good if you have BD skills, of course. But even if you don't, then just finding someone and being genuinely interested in them, getting to know them, and then through that they kind of introduce you to more people. It's yeah, kind definitely. Of way. Yeah, I think it's also kind of helps build up your networks as well. And a lot of times you might kind of know someone from like virtually, but never have met them. IRL and when you finally meet in real life the connection gets even stronger uh, yeah sure. yeah but yeah I definitely think the the IRL events are definitely like really valuable uh, there is some like dodgy stuff that goes on at some of them and there's like I don't know kind of some some weird stuff just like kind of people who kind of I just said to like party, drink and, and have a good time, which is completely fine. But yeah, some some people get a bit too carried away at some, some of these events as well. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, definitely go, go to the events and, and meet these people. I think even a great thing is speaking at events, providing, I guess, content and value to others in that sense. Definitely attracts a large crowd. It's personally what I've done. Otherwise, I would probably still be a nobody. Um, so yeah, providing yeah. content is a very is a very uh, powerful thing, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think if you can speak at events and actually like, yeah, help educate a bunch of people who don't necessarily like know the stuff you do, that's super valuable as well. And I guess it's kind of giving back to the space, which is always good. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely definitely worth doing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's evergreen content as well like if it's recorded it would be on youtube until youtube dies i guess or something happens uh you know maybe they put it on spotify and then it's just like you're always there basically so it's definitely worth putting your name out there i understand the reason not to but if you're a protocol developer then it's necessary to get your name out there build that reputation have people interested and then can just keep going. It's it's like basically linear or exponential depending on how good you're at it. But you're gonna have to hit that that road bump sooner or later. Yeah. But anyway, it's been great chatting with you for the first time. <laughs> Cheers, man. Old, you too. An old phantom buddy. Yeah, <laughs> back, back old, in the day. Old phantom days. We 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 made it out alive. We survived. Yeah. <laughs> All the crashes. Yeah. yeah. We're still here, still standing. Still going. <laughs> not wrecked yet. Almost wrecked, but not not yet. But yeah, man, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, hopefully people get some value out of this and are inspired to, to take the leap into the startup world. That's all we want. More builders building cool stuff. If the listeners have any anyone they want on, just message me on Twitter at ScrapingBits or... Email me at scrapingbits at gmail.com and I'll review who you've recommended and hopefully get them on. Otherwise, thank you so much for coming on and we'll see everyone in the next episode.